The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take a personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today, all the way from Vancouver, is Alice Graham Whitcomb. Hey, Graham. Hi, Gaurav. It's been great having you on lately, Graham. I hope it's not uh, keeping up too late or waking up too early. No, it's 4.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> wow. Oh, well, that's pretty cozy, actually. We have to, I have to sit here pretty early. It's 9 a.m., too early. We're, we're at home, lockdown. Isn't it 10 a.m.? I think it's 10 a.m. Oh, geez, look at that. It's 10 a.m. 9.50. <laughs> and uh, you might have recognized the voice, but joining us also is uh, Mickey, our analyst, uh, Mickey Mordek. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Gorevson. <laughs> <laughs> No one's going to understand that joke, Mickey, but uh, let's carry on regardless. Um, let's begin with uh, Graham. Let's start with um, Sydney Airport. There was some news about Sydney Airport, some yeah. surprising news. Fill us in what happened. Very big news. Um, the largest uh, takeover offer in history was launched a couple of days ago. Hang on. Uh, is, that, is that true in Australian corporate history? That can't be yeah, right. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that until I kind of looked into it, but um, yeah. $30, $30 billion is an enterprise value for Sydney Airport. That takes it to the top spot of uh, proposed takeovers. Now, what's number? what was their previous winner? Do you know? No, I'm not sure. And it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't uh, stand up very well against international ones. There's been some $100 billion yeah, ones right. internationally. But hmm. in little Australia, it's the biggest. And what do we think about it? Well, first of all, I was very surprised. We, I think we were on a meeting and then uh, JC just... Um, chirped up and said, oh, there's been a bid for Sydney Airport. And, and I was quite shocked by that. I did not expect that at all. Were you um, surprised or were, did you think that was a, always a possibility? Yeah, I was I was quite surprised just by the sheer size of it. Uh, you have to have pretty deep pockets to spend that much, mm. uh, especially it's an all-cash offer. Uh, however, I mean, it kind of makes sense because there's been, with interest rates so low, uh there's plenty of pension funds and uh, infrastructure funds that are just hungry for assets. So all kinds of uh, infrastructure assets have been going up in price or getting takeover offers. Now, so in that get... sense, it didn't didn't it wasn't too surprising that they would try for Sydney Airport. But I was I was still caught off guard just because of its size. Now, but before we get into the details of the bid, that's an interesting point you raised there, Mickelson. Um, do you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That always makes me laugh, Mickey. Do you um this? I I've heard this argument. I guess I kind of made this argument in the past as well. That it's it's possible that these infrastructure style assets are just um, permanently mispriced by public markets, and that private investors uh, interested in low risk, uh, recurring returns will always pay more for them. And and in an environment where they have access to deep pools of cheap capital they're able, able to actually pay higher prices than public markets. Do you think that's true across the board is, or is, is this kind of um, specific to Sydney Airport? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that certainly seems to be the case. I guess like for a lot of those pension funds or, you know, infrastructure sale funds, maybe they have lower return hurdles than yeah, I like was some, that too. Yeah. some, some, some like equity investors. So mm. I guess there's, you know, you can, you can probably make money like buying these assets and hoping that, um, hoping that an infrastructure as um sorry fund comes along and, and buys it but um you're kind of hoping that 
someone will. And I guess if if no one does, then you're just holding the asset and you get the return of the asset. So I guess it kind of works when we're in this paradigm, but like maybe that paradigm can change at some ch- at some point or. Um, you As know, someone who covers yeah. a lot of these infrastructure-style assets, um, I got to tell you, valuing these things is now very difficult because in the, the great thing about these businesses is that they lend themselves very well to modeling, and I don't like to use um, modeling often in my valuations. I just think it tends to lead down the wrong way of thinking and often the wrong answer. But in these style of businesses, it's a great way to do things. But the return hurdle is always the uh, the sticking point, and if and if you know that. Um, super funds are using a much lower return hurdle than you ordinarily would. Would you? I mean, do you do you plug that in and raise the valuation of the asset, or do you do you stick to your own return hurdle? It's a real. I mean, I think that's a point of confusion. I'm not sure there's an easy answer for that, but it is a conundrum. It means we potentially miss out on opportunities, or we end up paying what we think is too much for them. Or the opposite, which is that you you're valuing them correctly, but you're just not able to predict what other people will value them at. There is a difference. But isn't, between... isn't, the, isn't, the, isn't the correct price what, what the marginal buyer is prepared to pay? Isn't that the way stock markets work? It depends on your opportunity cost. If you can get a 15% return mm. elsewhere, then something's worthless to you if it if it earns less than that and has a higher risk. I think that the, so one, part of the issue is that, like, you know, if you're if you're buying it as a fund or a super fund, then you're buying like the whole thing. And so then you can just lever it up on really low interest rates. And so mm-hmm. maybe you're not looking at like, you're not looking at a cost of, um, you know, say like an equity investor needs a 10% return. But if you're borrowing, you know, 60% of it at 3%, then you can get, you can, af- you can afford a much lower return and still get a pretty good return on it. So, mm-hmm. um, and they also so, have much longer horizons that these pension funds are yeah. buying them. For the next 50 years, normal investors aren't thinking about Sydney Airport as a 50-year investment. Graham, was that an admission? To what? <laughs> <laughs> You're not thinking 50 years ahead? You know, JC would be <laughs> horrified to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I guess that'll put me in my 80s. So I don't know. Maybe I'll think about 40 and then I'll just spend it all in my last 10 years. <laughs> now, um, let's get to the specifics of the deal. The the we, So talk, us about, talk to us about who's actually buying the asset and is it worth that amount of money? So it's a group of uh, pension and uh, infrastructure funds, as we kind of implied, uh, a couple of Australian ones and some international ones. Uh, they've offered eight twenty-five per share, which puts it at about $22 billion for the equity in Sydney Airport and $30 billion if you add their net debt. Uh, and what's which that is, in terms of per share? That's $8.25. Sorry, I might have missed that. Okay. Right, yeah, twenty-five. Uh, so that puts it pretty close to almost almost as high as it was uh, just prior to the pandemic. So it's an interesting valuation because they're essentially valuing it at the highest price that was ever paid for it before the pandemic, and now we're in a much more uncertain world. So I think that's what they're relying on is that the uh, they've they're, there's probably an argument that they've put in such a high bid because it means the board will have a lot of difficulty rejecting it. There's The board's never, and kind of didn't sound very uh, positive on the deal in the actual announcement. I thought they but, were quite um, dismissive, actually. For, for an offer that is, I would have thought, quite reasonable. Um, yeah, they, they I thought it was kind of funny because they, they say they haven't formed an opinion, but it seemed like they had very much formed an opinion uh, in the announcement. But uh, 
I mean, they're probably correct that they are being, the funds are being opportunistic going in for it now. Uh, in any case, the valuation doesn't look too bad, but we think that there's a bit more to go in terms of its uh, true true value, particularly now when the economy is starting, or at least the global economy is starting to recover. Travel is much higher across the board. So they seem past the worst of it. And it's, it's probably only a matter of time before Sydney Airport opens up and enjoys that same boom in passenger numbers. Now, I wanted to challenge that notion a little bit. I'm the only analyst, I think, who doesn't own Sydney Airport. And I know all you guys jumped on it pretty quickly. I, I bought Auckland. I don't own it either. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Mickey doesn't own it either. I bought Auckland um, during the pandemic, and I've since um, sold that. But um, I, I don't own any at the moment. And the reason I, don't, I'm not, I ha- haven't bought any myself is that I'm not convinced, Graham, that the future returns of Sydney Airport are going to resemble the past because I, I don't think the... Uh, capital structure can be the same as it has been in the past. This has been a business that's um, spruced returns with a lot of debt, and I think that's been entirely appropriate because it is a um, it is a high quality business. It can handle a lot of debt, and they've used that to generate very good returns in the past. I just can't see bankers, um, regulators, or other uh, stakeholders allowing the business to carry that much debt in the past, having lived through a year where revenues fell by ninety five percent. And I don't know. I think that you, I think it depends on when the time frame you're looking at. We know that Sydney Airport has to be handed back to the government in 2097. So in that sense, no, it can't have debt on that last day. Uh, so at some point, the capital structure will have to change. But at the same time, at the moment, it's got uh, 7.5 billion or so of net debt. But prior to the pandemic, it was earning more than a billion in cash flow each year, free cash flow, distributable. Mm-hmm. So you could knock off seven years from the end of the lease. And then, so that makes it what, like a 70 year lease uh, where you've got no debt essentially. Mm. So I, I think you're right that in the long term it has to change, but you've, there's a long runway before then uh, that it can keep up this. I know theoretically this, this it can, but are, are bankers and, and management, are they going to be willing to run a, a business that, where we've had an example of revenue falling 95%. Because in the past, no one would have thought our revenues would be down 95% one year. Yeah. No one would have thought that's a possibility. But now I we know that funding... possibility exists. I can't imagine they'd be running the, gearing the assets so heavily. I think the funding costs might go up a little bit, but where else are the bankers going to put their money? Sydney Airport is still, if anything, you could use this crisis as an example for why it is such a good asset. Because we've had two years of mm. no revenue basically and uh it still has managed to survive and uh the debt grew a little bit but nothing catastrophic uh, i think it shows its resilience one of the things i guess that concerns me and i don't think well anyone knows how it's going to play out but we've kind of set a precedent now where you know if we get another pandemic it maybe yeah. you know these are kind of going to be like a regular thing where you know, airports, our airlines, airports going to be shut down for two years at a time every decade. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, I think you're right. That that worries me as well. That this is a, a yeah. strange precedent that um that means lockdowns are probably, which were previously kind of, uh, you would never have thought that they were possible in big Western economies. But uh, now that cat's out of the bag. So I think they will be used again. 
And then they, and uh, the smallest in the past. I mean, we haven't we've had a lot of new coronaviruses emerge all over the world. You know, there's been SARS and MERS and all of that, um, and we haven't responded uh, with wholesale, um, you know, closing of the borders. But you can imagine in the future the smallest whiff of a new mm. um, SARS virus or coronavirus, and and everything, all the international travel is going to completely stop. Surely, um, that's going to be the default reaction. So. I don't know. For me, um, no, no question that this is a premier asset. I think management's really good, Graham. And, and I agree that theoretically the business is capable of a lot of debt. Um, but practically, I'd be surprised to see management um, take on the debt they have in the past. Although I take your point that when I think about it, you're right, actually. They've just gone through two years where, <laughs> where revenue's fallen 95% they're still there. So maybe, maybe they might take, uh, maybe, maybe that's the approach they'll take. They might take that to the bankers and say, look, we're still around after such a catastrophe. That's quite interesting. Anything about and that? And it's just, I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine a banker turning to almost any other business and being more generous with it. This, this is an absolute monopoly over mm-hmm. the most important gate to Australia, uh, it has ridiculous margins in normal times of like 50% net profit. Uh, and yeah, most of the, the capital cost was paid up front to get the lease and to build the airport itself. So now it just, yeah, it's, I suppose is, there I'm is no better about... asset, I think, in Australia in terms of valuation aside. I'm looking at, I'm, I'm thinking about um, the GFC and prior to the GFC, you know, we had these, what we thought were adequate capital adequacy ratios and T1 capital ratios for banks. And post the GFC, all that changed. Um, And I just think when you get a big external shock, um, everyone reacts, maybe overreacts to that shock. And you you can't, you you see that happening throughout history. Um, You know, when the first, um, even go back to the 70s, when the oil crisis, when oil prices jumped, you know, people's behavior permanently changed. Uh, and that's when uh, Japanese importers or Japanese exporters, sorry, got uh, got going in the US because of, of the um, of the way consumers were so burned by those high oil prices. Uh, you know, these sort of um, big impacts, external impacts have lingering effects. And I, I do think it's a possibility that um, Sydney Airport will be, have, will be forced to be more con- conservative in the future. Um, but um, as you say, that might not even that might not even matter. What do you think the chances are of getting uh, the the um, the bid up? Do you think um, this is going to invite other acquirers, or do you think at some point management is going to have to engage? I think the bid's probably good enough for them to have to engage. Oh yeah, the, you can bet management are looking into it. Uh, well, it's hard to know what the the odds of something higher would be. Um, yeah. I mean, Unisuper has a large stake in Sydney Airport, fifteen percent or so. So mm. they they have a bit of a swing uh, vote over the deal the deal's ability to go through. So it's possible that other super funds or other um, infrastructure funds are now making proposals to Unisuper to get here mm. to get that on yeah, uh, right. their side. So another another offer is possible. I don't think it would come in any higher than this one, really. Um, and the share price, the current share price is below the offer price, which suggests that yeah, the that market as a whole yeah. that it'll, <laughs> it'll probably not go any higher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a small probability it'll go through, sorry, that it'll fail. Uh, it might fail some of the regulatory hurdles, uh, because it is such an important asset. There's a whole heap of reviews that need to be done for it to change hands. 
Uh, also, there's, um, I mean, depending on management's aggressiveness, it doesn't sound like they're very keen on the deal. They could always go to some independent valuer and have the valuer say that Sydney Airport's worth much more than the current offer price as a way to reject it. Uh, mm. So there are different levers that could probably be pulled, but it is such a, an absurdly high offer uh, in terms of total value that uh, they'll probably have a hard time arguing that. One so of the things that's... Uh, Sorry, go on, Michael. Oh, no, I was just going to say one of the things I guess that's a bit sad about all these offers and mm. things is that you feel like all these good assets are getting just taken yeah. off the market. And yeah. then... Yeah. Um, what are you That's exactly do? how I felt <laughs> when I saw it. I was like, oh, Sydney Airport's one of the best uh, in Australia. It deserves to be in the hands of the people. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, at the same time, we're tech. getting Tabcorp spitting out the lottery's business. So at least that'll be, we'll kind of exchange one for another. All right. Just uh, two quick questions, um, Graham. Um, one, first of all, the real test is what you do with with your money, would you be tempted to sell into this offer or would you hold on to it? No, I own Sydney Airport and I wouldn't. I don't intend to sell into the offer at this price anyway. Ooh, I must say, if I owned it, I would probably be selling into the offer. <laughs> Mickey, what about you? If you're, even if you're getting, even at the offer price, yeah, uh, it's if you held it for the next 20 years, you're probably going to earn at least an 8 or 9% return. Yeah. Uh, so unless you think you can do something better with the money. Yeah, I then... think that's that's the... That's the crux of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't think... I, I think it does undervalue Sydney Airport. Mm. Uh, it's hard to make that claim when it's the largest amount ever paid for a business in Australia, but mm. Sydney Airport's just unreal. I wouldn't love want it. to be selling it. Love love it, Graham. Great, great conviction. Um, huh. Mickey, how about you? Would you uh, would you be holding or would you be selling into the offer? Uh, um, I don't know. I'd probably probably be holding i think i don't i don't i don't um but i don't i'm yeah i think i'd be holding mm. i um I'd probably have a natural in- the problem is what are you what are you going to put your money into now it's almost like everything's so expensive and what are you gonna you're probably gonna have some capital gains if you bought it you know five six years ago well actually maybe not um uh, yeah, so but <laughs> this is why Graham's the analyst on this. Yeah, stuff. and He's you're got not. Much more interesting <laughs> things to say about it. Hey, Graham, uh, while we've got you here, um, give us a quick um, a quick couple of words on TabCorp as well. So I, I think this is a, a, a really interesting development to see um, TabCorp announcing a formal split, humiliating, I think, for previous port and management. It's just yeah. such a waste of money. Um, this whole process has been such a waste. But um, well, I'm surprised to see the share price fall a bit. Is that in, in your, I mean, talk to us about that a little bit. What, do you think it's a good development or not? Well, I think it's really good in the sense that it probably made sense from the get-go to have the lotteries business separate to the wagering business. Hmm. Uh, combining TAT's wagering business with Tabcorp's wagering business made sense. And you can also, in terms of the original merger with TAT's, hmm. uh, and until now, management has always had the pitch that it's important to have the lotteries business too because it's mm. a stable earner and it can offset some of the volatility in the wagering side. And but it pays is, our salaries. Exactly. That's what mm. I think the biggest thing is, is mm. it has always made sense to split uh, lotteries off, really. I don't think those other arguments are very strong. Mm. Uh, however, what's changed is 
uh, David Attenborough, the CEO, is now leaving. <laughs> and so he probably doesn't have that incentive to manage um, half as much company and then earn a substantially lower wage. He doesn't really care anymore because he's leaving. So, yeah, until now, he's been in favor of keeping the businesses together, probably because it, I mean, I don't know what his motives are, but uh, it certainly supported his wage the whole time, which is tens of millions overall. Wow. Um, is that right? In terms of what he's earned cumulatively, I think Tens his annual salary is in the millions. I can't remember. That is extraordinary for when you look at how much value has been lost slash created. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Abcorp compared to how much the managers have taken. That is extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he and the um, chairman are changing seats now. So mm. with, and with the two separate businesses, I think that'll be... They'll probably be in a much better position, if only because shareholders can then own each of them independently, value them independently, and you don't mm. get this. I like the uh, the Charlie Munger quote: uh, "If you mix raisins with turds, you still have turds." <laughs> so it was a shame mixing in lotteries with the wagering business, which is mm. very inferior. That lotteries business may be the best business in Australia, I reckon. I think it's a contender with Sydney Airport. I'd be happy to own both of them for the next 50 years. I reckon it's a contender with realestate.com above Sydney Airport for me. Uh, huh. Yeah. Mickey, weighing in? Oh, the lotteries. You probably uh, say yeah, email. I mean... You probably reckon email is the best business in Australia. Oh, jeez. Yeah, no, I reckon you. it's <laughs> You love that thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, lotteries. Um, yeah, like it's, yeah, it's obviously, it's great business. Um, I mean, I guess it's just the growth, isn't it? You know, it's just how fast it grows, but yeah. Mm. Um, you know, it's pretty much a license to print money, isn't it? That's exactly what it is, yeah. And it's getting better and better because now it's able to do a direct to, uh, yeah, sell directly to the public through its oh. website. That takes yeah. out what tiny amounts of capital it did need to mm. reinvest. It doesn't pay the huge commission to the, uh, the news yeah. agents. Mm. Like this was an already phenomenal business, and it's now, over the past few years, transformed and helped by the pandemic, transformed mm. into an even better one. Nice one. Well, we'll um, I expect you'll be, there'll be more to say about um, Tapcorp at another stage, especially as we get closer to that split. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be printing uh, or publishing an article later this week. Nice one. Um, Mickey, let's move on along to you because uh, we hinted about your love affair with EML. <laughs> <laughs> let's explore that. That's a bit of that, a love-hate relationship at the moment. But, I call it um... infatuation. I do not understand your uh <laughs> your um, attention to this business. I must say, I so I thought what we do here is I'm going to be the email skeptic. I think a role I play quite easily. And um, you can convince me about the merits of a business that what, four times in the last 12 months we've woken up and, and the share price has fallen 30% in, <laughs> in, in that morning. It's never been more undervalued. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, before, I mean, when, before we jump yeah, into it, um, yeah. it's a complicated business. People might not be familiar with it. Just give us the the basics about how the company works. Well, so the forty percent thing, I think, was it. it I mean, it fell in the pandemic, um, and regularly. It, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it. You know, but I mean, so did a lot of things. Yeah, um, no, that's fair. Uh, so I don't think you can hold that against the company, and I also don't think. Um, well, I mean, it also depends. Like, if you think the market's rational, then okay, fair enough. But if you think the market can sometimes be irrational, then who cares what the price is doing, really? Mm. Um, so, uh, to that, th that would be my my um, arguments there. But I think it's also it is it is a, it is a complicated business, and 
I think when you first come to it, it's sort of um, a bit nebulous, and so it's a bit um, hard to um, kind of get comfortable with it. And it's buying other businesses, and so the financials are, bit, are quite messy as well. Um, and so, you know, I think it is prone to these kinds of uh, ups and downs. But I guess just to give you kind of an overview of what the business does is is that it's um, you'd kind of just describe it as um, a payments software technology provider. Um, so they they pretty much provide like a payments platform, uh, and that platform. Uh, you can it 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 um, facilitates payments. It processes payments. It deals with banks. It deals with underlying card networks like Mastercard and Visa. Uh, it can it can facilitate you know um, uh, AML and and know your customer protocols, which is part of the issue that they're facing at the moment. Um, you know, so just kind of it, it's basically a platform uh, that a technology platform uh, for. Uh, for payments providers and so what they do is uh, you know they're dealing they're not selling directly to consumers they're selling to other companies and companies can essentially come along plug into the platform and they build apps on top of that platform um, and so what you're seeing is like lots and lots of apps are being built on the EML platform um, and so these are apps like sports betting uh, they are apps like um, you know neo lending uh, even like the New South Wales uh, transport um, you know the Opal system now is 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 they're, they're doing a pilot with EML. Um, so there's lots of lots of lots of different applications for this as payments become increasingly digital and and uh, and so um, and so that's kind of uh, what they're um, mm. what they're doing. So the aim of the game pretty much for them is just to build out their platform, offer as much different um, types of technology that they can keep keep innovating, maybe keep buying things to plug into that platform and make it better and better, and then invite um, business customers to, to build apps on top of it, mm. um, basically. And then um, and then basically, once they've, they've built those apps on top of it, uh, they can, you know, they go off, they market those programs, and email earns money by, you know, the transactions processed through the platform. Mm. Um, and... Uh, and um, How would they and- compete against... Mastercard and Stripe and the other big payment platforms. Well, they're not they're not exactly competing. Um, so, like Mastercard is a, is a partner. Um, so they partner with Mastercard and Visa, and um, yeah. So Ma- Mastercard's not a competitor. Mastercard's more of like a supplier. Uh, Stripe is um, just operating in, in different parts of the payments space. Um, so Stripe is probably more about you know facilitating cross-border uh, payments for, for merchants and things like that, among many, many other things. Um, it is, I guess it is like quite a um, broad space and it's such a rapidly growing space, digital payments, that, um, you know, it's not, I don't think that, I think it's more, um, they're not, they're not kind, there's going to be lots and lots of different niches and lots of different specializations. Uh, so they don't necessarily need to kind of compete. And like once you once you've developed a solution, so say say for example, um, well, okay. So the classic example is like the gift cards, small gift cards. So this is kind of what their bread and butter was um, before the pandemic. So they you know they issue gift cards when you go into a Westfield or what have you, uh, or a Simon's Malls now. Uh, you you know you get a gift card. 
they provide, they actually issue the card, they, you know, store the balance, they, you know, process the payments, they make sure it's being spent inside the center, they give the operator like a software interface. Um, and what happens is, I guess, once they develop that, that niche, then they can invest more in it um, than their competitors, and they can keep developing that solution. And, um, and, and, and so basically, you just kind of get these providers that end up kind of owning particular niches of payments and so it's um it's pretty much just about i guess developing new niches and 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 new new programs and inviting new programs on and, and there's a lot of switching costs involved because once say for example these gift cards you know you've got thousands of them in the market if you want to transition providers it's very very hard because you have to you know um well, a you know find a new provider but you also have to transition your current customers onto like a new yeah. program or something no, I, like I do that. agree with that that's actually probably the best part of the business is that once you've built a bespoke payment solution for someone uh it's very unlikely they're going to switch away from that um but mickey can they really scale by building a whole series of specific solutions for specific customers is that the same thing as a a um Oh, sorry. What's that? What's that American business? That one that I really like. Um, the one that Facebook's CEO runs. Um, not Facebook CEO. What am I saying? Uh, Twitter CEO. Facebook. Runs. <laughs> Twitter CEO. <laughs> the, one that, that, the one that Twitter CEO. Are you runs. talking about Stripe? Or no, no, not. It's, it's not Stripe. It's um. Oh, Square. 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 You thank you. Square. Square. Yeah. Oh, Square. Yeah, yeah. So Square. Square can scale beautifully because it uses um, so one one piece of software and. Everything uh, runs through that, so the solution is quite scalable. Um, whereas here, every new new customer requires um, a, a bespoke piece of um, software and uh, a whole bunch of specific investment to well, get that customer well, up and running. Well, yeah. So I think that's sort of how it sort of began. But as they've built out the platform, now it's more about just people building their own apps on top of it so they pretty much provide like the underlying architecture hmm. and then you come along as a software developer and you can just plug into their um apis which is which is essentially just a way for two pieces of software to communicate Do you know mickey um, it took me i came across apis when i was researching tyro no joke it took me like a week and a half to understand what the heck an api was and then you've just explained it in one sentence just beautifully that's exactly well, what it is yeah i i don't really understand um coding or developing but i you know i understand that well i understand that's the purpose of it i think um so it just means that if you if you are a um, company, say you're a lending company and you want to provide your customers with a card uh, that allows people to go out and spend it and, and, and monitor their purchases, you, you don't have to necessarily um, have a person, you might have an account manager at EML, I guess, but you can, you can develop um, using their software you can plug directly in. So um, I think it is quite scalable and, uh, and it's definitely scalable in the sense that once they start onboarding customers and that initial maybe development work is done mm. they can grow their business and you kind of grow with them and they're the ones that are spending on the marketing and the development and uh and building that that business so um so it's a company that's been around for a long time though i just wonder why i mean it's not exactly a small business but but why has it taken so long for the model to uh, kind of be kind of work really well. Um, is it? I understand they had a name change and new management come through. Was that the 
was that the change? Was were they doing something different? Well, um, previously, yeah. So, uh, so testing my memory here, but so in 2012, uh, it was a different business, and then the board, but uh, board bought a, a, a um, little company called Emergence, and I thought Emergence uh, was they, the original they, business, wasn't it? Well, so, so before they bought that, um, they were something else. I can't remember what. And right, then the okay. board, um, they were, it was basically a shell company. And then they bought Emergence and then they uh, brought in um, Tom Cregan from, um, uh, I think it's, uh, I can remember. We're, we're a bunch name, of old men today. This is terrible. <laughs> is I can't remember anyone's name. You can't remember anyone's name. <laughs> is it World's? Is it his vice president at, yeah. um, at, at another payments company. And uh, and so he, he came along, renegotiated some of the main deals, and he sort of built the company up from there. I must admit, he um, is genuinely um, impressive. I've seen him present a few times, and he really um, understands that business really, really well and super competent management. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, sh- the share price sort of speaks for itself. I mean, you know, you, you've seen the share price rise. Hang on a second. You can't, you can't <laughs> in, the, in the one hand say, oh, it doesn't matter what the share price is doing. And on the other hand, saying that the share price is, is a measure of success. I was hoping I'd get away with it at that time. But, um, but I mean, if you look, well, so, so I, can, I can be a bit more nuanced and say maybe over the short term, the share price doesn't matter that much. But over the, the last... the share price agrees with me, it matters very much. <laughs> that sounds more like it. Well, over the last 10 years, the share price has risen, what, 30, 40, 50 times. So, um, you know, that's, that's pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, I think he's, he's done a great job of, of building that business. So, um uh, so the the reason the share price has gotten smacked, though the most recent reason why the share price has gotten smacked, is because of a a deal they made um, to buy an Irish financial payments business. Uh, why has that suddenly gone sour, and does that change your opinion? Oh, what, so why has it gone sour? I mean, so I think um, if you well in the original. Um, release that they made it, it they mentioned kind of brexit and they mentioned changing regulatory domicile so you know it's possible that you know they've bought this business and then they've moved some code card programs across uh and that's you know attracted a, a bit more regulatory attention um we still don't know actually what's what's happened and we don't know how serious uh you know the 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 complaints are um, you know, so was there's it been the regulators some... complaining. Yeah, so it was the regulators that 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 had issue with some of the controls around the um, AML procedures um, of of this company that they've bought in in Ireland, which was prepaid uh, financial services. Um, so, yeah, so I guess a couple of a couple of ways that I'm sort of thinking about it is that um, when they bought it, um, there was a couple of regulatory issues that they they knew about um and uh so that that um maybe they knew that you know there was maybe a couple of a couple of small issues and probably they've they you know figured they could they could invest and maybe bring it up to scratch but um so there probably probably have been uh you know maybe a couple of things but they, they these programs also are providing like a valuable service in 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 many ways as well like for example they're doing government disbursements to people so that they can buy food, and so that they can, uh, you know, pay pay for pay for essentials. For example, that's one of the card programs that they have. So I, you know, I have a bit of a tough time thinking like the regulators not 
you know, going to take into account, you know, the, um, the kind of service that they're also providing. Um, but yeah, so I guess, it, you know, share price has fallen a long way. It's kind of recovered a little bit, but, um, you know, the fact is we just, we just don't know. And if you look at the kind of precedents, like Macquarie came out with a piece of research that kind of looked at the last few times that, um, you know, regulators have looked into, uh, this particular regulator has looked into a financial services business. Um, and, and, uh, the norm is just a, a fine and some sort of remediate, remediatory kind of um, action. So, uh, but I guess the publicity as well in the meantime has, um, has does have, you know, implications as well because, you know, if you're, if you're a new customer, maybe you're second guessing, you know, joining up or, mm. uh, you know, if you, you maybe have increased insurance and legal costs and things like that. So, uh that is a bit unfortunate. I think they've probably just been, haven't been able to defend themselves because it's, you know, it's, everything's, um, they're not, you know, it's all confidential and they're not able to, to talk about anything. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But I, I think that the, the sooner they can get well, this all maybe. sorted out, then hopefully they can start to rebuild a bit of confidence. And um, so that's, that's about it really. But um, <laughs> there's, there's not too much to say. It's sort of a bit of a, a vacuum of of information um but why is there why is there that uh lack of information is the regulator requiring it well yeah so the the announcements have just said that the 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 discussions are confidential um so uh you know perhaps once the issues are uh resolved assuming they are resolved then um you know they might be able to to, to um, maybe educate the market a bit on, on what's actually happened. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so I guess it is in these moments, though, where you kind of go, there's lots of uncertainty, uh, you know, but what's the what's maybe the worst case? Um, and the worst case is, well, you know, something really bad happened to that business. And then, um, but that's not necessarily going to be like the base case. It's probably going to be, as we've looked at with these precedents, that's sort of your base rate. And your base rate, I guess, is if you look at the past actions that um, that the regulator has taken. And if you mm. kind of judge based on those base rates, then uh, then you would assume that maybe there's going to be a fine and some sort of regulatory action. Uh, we don't we don't know for sure. Um, and so there's just some uncertainty that we've got to deal with. Uh, which is a bit of a shame because I think the business was, was, was doing really well and it was looking forward to a big, big year, but hopefully we'll get a resolution pretty soon. So That's quite tricky, actually. I agree with what you're saying there, Mickey. When, when you have these kinds of um, high uncertain environments, people tend to not want to deploy their capital and it's, it's often a great opportunity. But on the flip side, the outcome is just completely out of your hands and it's quite difficult to predict. Um, I know that you're saying that there's some precedents, but and I in the past would have actually really latched onto those precedents. Um, but my recent experience with TPG and the ACCC, I, I just realised that a lot of these institutions are so heavily dependent on individuals inside, and those people change, and the precedents maybe don't mean as much as you might think. It's not really a court of law, um, so it, the outcome can be really uh, hard to predict, and, and maybe all that uncertainty by the market is probably warranted. I don't, maybe it isn't, you know, risk on a risk-adjusted basis. Maybe it isn't 
um, a great opportunity like uh, you know I would have thought a, a year or two ago. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess so if you if you considered the worst case, we wrote like an article yeah, and no, just assumed right. that, um, mm. you know, if it loses all its revenue, mm. well, you know, that really only kind of takes it back to um, where it was yeah. before the acquisition. And, and that's kind of the market cap at the moment. I mean, it's, it has recovered a little bit. So, mm. you know, it, it, it's almost all factored in uh, already. Um, and then if, if it isn't that bad, we'll... It could be plenty of upside, but um, so on the so, probability yeah. basis, it actually looks okay. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, we've 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 got a hold on it, but I mean, if you, like, for example, um, you know, if someone didn't have, you know, had a little bit of extra, and they're looking, maybe now's not a terrible time to to get involved. But um, oh, calm but down yeah, there, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> now, now's not a terrible time to get involved. <laughs> the most, not the most ringing endorsement. <laughs> no, well, it's uh, yeah. So, but um, all right, that's going to be our next yeah. headline um, when we write about email. You've heard it here first, <clears throat> right? Um, Graham, anything else to to add? Any questions? Do you own email? Are you interested? I d- I don't own email, no. And I feel I liked it more before that conversation. <laughs> 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 I didn't. I, uh, I I'm always very skeptical when management hold back information. Even if they claim confidentiality and all the rest of it, I uh, I just haven't had many experiences where that ended in my favor. Mm. Yeah. Well. But it could be. I mean, maybe the regulator has made it confidential. Guess... Maybe it's such a sensitive issue or involves specific people that could lead to criminal charges or something. There are reasons that they might be confidential, but uh, hmm. I don't know. I just don't well, like it either. But that's where well, the opportunity is, is lots of people don't like it. Well, I guess the specific the specifics are probably you know they can, maybe can't talk about, but I guess they've they've mentioned it's to do with AML. Um, I guess it's sort of a, also at this stage you are kind of betting on management as well, and I guess you kind of you know it, it sort of does depend if you you know if you if you if you back them basically, mm-hmm. and um, if you have been on the journey with them and and uh, and you think that they can keep on going, and and has to be said, management does own a lot of stock as well in the company, yeah. so. Yeah, they'll have a they'll have a very strong vested interest in, in in getting on top of this and doing what it takes to um to get a resolution and and move on. Uh, so yeah, I guess and I do, it, that. and I do think of, a lot of yeah. uh, we sometimes forget that a lot of risk can actually man- be managed with portfolio allocation. I mean, we don't have to put uh, a, a massive chunk of money into every idea, and that these ideas that are kind of higher risk but higher payoff. And that's exactly what small position sizes are for, right? And um, being unduly pessimistic on every idea, it's just, it's an awful way to invest, I think. Um, and I've, I, I, as I said that as someone who probably used to look down before they looked up, and now I stopped, I've really stopped that approach. I just don't think it helps. I think the, the market is a mechanism where optimists do better than pessimists. And if you're going to go in and always, um, you know, say no to everything, uh, that's, uh, you're never going to do well. Yeah. Well, we do have a waiting limit on on the stock as well, um, and it's it's three percent at the moment. So yeah. definitely, uh, I think you know it, within those um, within those that's that's a perfectly um, reasonable position sizing. And uh, yeah, so well, it's already it's already been a thirty bagger. So um, another one. <laughs> not what, since another, we upgraded it, unfortunately. <laughs> not, but not since then. Um, yeah, plenty um, more to go though, right? 
Yeah, exactly. We'll we'll we'll, we'll um uh, be keen to to hopefully hear some hopefully hear some good news on that front at some stage. But um, we'll just have to sit tight. So now, while we're on the subject of good news, um, let's turn to <laughs> Telstra, which um, released some surprising news. I guess um they you know we've been talking about Telstra for a good eighteen months about how it holds some interesting infrastructure assets, um, how a split of those assets or a sale might um, generate some value. And and now they've gone off and, and done their first asset sale, and it's a, it's a bit of a cracker, really. The the price they got... Um, so I was on record as, as saying that, you know, they might get um, 30 times EBITDA for the tower business, but I assumed that was for the sale of a controlling interest in that business with really attractive um, contracts written to allow third parties access to it. Um, and I thought that might get them 30 times. In fact, what they've ended up doing is selling a minority stake in the towers business with an exclusive contract for 15 years with options for multiple decades after that. So they've actually changed none of their operations. They've had to give up no operational control. They maintain the entire network integrity, entire network ownership um, and network control, sorry, and they still got a 28 times EBITDA for the towers business. I'm, I'm really stunned by the price. I, it just goes back to that point we talked about at the top of the podcast about super funds potentially having lower hurdle rates and, and being capable of paying uh, sums of money that no other investor would really pay for. I, I think that's it, it's a pretty crazy price. I would never have thought they got that um, under the terms of the sale. Um, but... It values their their tower business at about six billion dollars, and it means that the bid that Telstra gets um, two point eight billion dollars um, in as a cash injection um, straight away. And it, it, the the parties who are buying it are a collection of local super funds led by the Future Fund. So um, it's a secure, uh, non-threatening, and low-demanding uh, buyer who's bought the minority interest. So it's it's but Telstra, an ideal JV partner. So a really good deal all around for Telstra. But I hear you asking, gentlemen, uh, why was I relatively negative about the sale then? Is that is that the question that was on your lips? You beat me to it. There we go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, the, the reason why I was a bit disappointed was not really the sale. It's just the, the signal that the sale sends and the way the company intends to use the proceeds of the sale. So first let's talk about the proceeds. So $2.8 billion coming in. They've already said that um, half of the proceeds will be paid as a dividend. So that's, that's 50% gone. The rest they're going to um, pay off debt. They've got a big chunk of debt being uh, that's due for refinancing, I think at the end of this year or early next year. And so the, the, the sum will go towards that. Only $75 million is going to be reinvested into the company, $75 million out of a $2.8 billion transaction. And I just think that that little bit of information tells you so much about Telstra. This is a business that's run and geared just to keep that dividend pumping along. And I don't think management has the long term um, in the front of its mind. And I don't think they're trying to make the best business they can. They are just trying to um, get a, the cash coming through the door to then send it off to shareholders. And, and you know, there'll be shareholders who really love that. Um, and there's a lot of value in, in franking credits. And you might think that, well, a business with the capital allocation record of Telstra, uh, which is truly atrocious, I mean, you probably want them to pay out as, as, much, as many dividends as you possibly could. But 
at the same token that this is a company with some pretty good quality assets with a commanding market share with a mm-hmm. with a fantastic brand and it's just a shame to think that it's never going to be a great business and it's never going to be that. What do you feel that they could do with the so well, well um yeah look um i i, I don't have any clever ideas but then again if you pay me andy penn's um salary maybe i'll sit down and come up with a few you know i mean <laughs> the board and management yeah. suck out tens of millions of dollars and you're telling me the best they can do over this period is just hand the cash back um it, it reminds me of several mistakes that the company has, done, has made over the last 10 years the first one was when the nbn was first sold um Telstra gained $11 billion as a compensation payment. So the company had $11 billion to allocate to try and, and, um, and change the business around so it wouldn't be so dependent on, you know, it wouldn't miss the, the earnings from the wholesale monopoly that it had lost. And instead of reinvesting that business or turning that business around or, or doing something mm. innovative or interesting with it, they just, yeah. again, they just handed all that back to shareholders in unsustainable dividends. It had to be cut in, in the future anyway. So... I think that's a waste opportunity. And the other waste opportunity was when Vodafone was going through its struggles um, a couple of years ago. Um, basically, all the market share that Vodafone ceded, so their market share went from about 12% down to about 4 or 5%. And all of that went to Telstra. And, and for a while, Telstra was earning the highest um, operating margins in the world on its mobile business. And rather than put their... their th- their foot on the throat of Vodafone. I think they could have crushed Vodafone and turned the local market into a duopoly. They just sat there and, and collected super normal payments, um, you know, um, paid dividends out to everyone, collected bonuses. You know, that, that, that's not the way great businesses uh, react. You know, they don't let, they don't, you know, earning, sitting there earning super normal profits and not changing anything is just as bad as sitting there and earning lousy margins and not changing anything. You know, I think this is a really lazy business and it's never going to be a great business. And that's just really dawned on me after this sale. He was an opportunity. Well, that's that's exactly, well, I think that's exactly it, Graham. And I think that really shows you what's important in a business. Um, You know, businesses are run by individuals. I mean, they have resources at their disposal, but, you know, uh, you look at a company like uh, Aussie Broadband, which has just been built out of, you know, a handful of guys running a company in regional Victoria have grown this fantastic, high-performing business that's agile and doing really interesting things. And then he's, he's Telstra, you know, the exact antithesis of all of that. Um, I, I did think when the plan for the split was announced, I thought, well, here's an opportunity for Telstra to shed a lot of assets, to turn itself into maybe a smaller, nimbler, uh, more customer-centric business and and that mobile business would be the center of that and it can shed all these these assets and this sale has highlighted that they have no intention of doing that they're going to maintain majority ownership of most of those assets and the asset sale is just another sugar hit to get more cash through the door to pay out as dividends and i am very disappointed with um uh, with that outcome i just think um I mean, we own Telstra in the portfolios. Um, it's a, you know, it's been. I think it's been an okay performer for members. It would have made maybe thirty percent or so on it, which is fine. Um, and you know, we'll make more money out of it, and eventually we'll sell it, and this will be a successful investment. You know, but it's it's not going to be a compound. It's never going to be a great business. And I think 
there was a shot that it could have been, and it's not. That's a shame. Well, they sort of. If I guess if they, those are some of the best assets that they're that they're selling, isn't it? That's yeah. So, totally. And, that's right. And so I guess it makes it a lower quality business. So it sort of seems strange that um, that that's sort of the the way that management is thinking about the business. I guess I would have been thinking along opposite lines, maybe like you shed the the kind of assets where you don't see as much um, uh, value. I guess. Quality. I, su- I suppose um, everyone's encouraging them. Uh, this deal has been lauded by everyone. Like all the brokers have upgraded it. Everyone's talking about how clever management is. Uh, you know, the share price reacted really strongly on the day it was announced. And everyone's looking at the other asset sales and wondering, well, how much money they can get. But I just think that asks the wrong question. You know, the how much money they can get from an asset sale is a one-off, one-off deployment of, of capital, whereas... If they're actually doing some real reform, they could they could change the business to grow revenues and earnings, which they have not done, by the way, for a good dozen years. Um, so, I think the you know I, you can't really blame management. You I mean investors will get the management that they deserve. You know, if, if all they demand from a company is is give us dividends, then that's what they'll get. And I just think maybe this is our fault as investors for not demanding more from the companies we invest in. And it's hard from a business the size of Telstra, you know, what are we supposed to do? But these big corporate investors, I think they're happy to sit there and, and take the dividends and, and ditto retirees who are just happy to sit there and take the dividends. And, you know, mm. no, no, I guess it's no big deal. We, we got other companies we can invest in. Indeed, we have invested in, but it's a, it's a shame for the, for the business itself. Does it change your uh, impression of, say, the price guide or anything around it? Or yeah, look, I double checked the price guide. Um, um, I, I think it's about right. It, there's a bit of variability in there, so I think if you know, I'm, I'm ex- I reckon it's probably worth through mid fours more so. Um, so there's probably a bit more to go, um, unless they do something silly. I mean, these guys aren't dumb; they're competent. I just think they lack ambition and imagination, and maybe incentive um, to do something more interesting. Um, but um, I think that I think the price guide's about right, uh, but it, it, you know, uh, if you ask me, you know, what stock do you want to own over ten years? I, I was in this in this industry, Quarry Telecom, Aussie Broadband, maybe Unity, Next DC, Telstra mm. would not even be on that list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I reckon I'm pretty sure within two years we would have been done with our dalliance with Telstra, and we'd probably, after that, not look at it for a while. So, yeah, I'm sounding bitter, but I am a little bit. I think it's a shame. Um, right. So, do you uh, think it was a still still a good upgrade though at three dollars? Well, yeah, I think uh, I think it was, but it could have been it could have been better. This could have been it could have been a chance for for Telstra to do um, what other large businesses have done overseas. You know, like IBM or, or Microsoft um, or Dell. Um, you know, these these used to be thought of as giant bureaucratic, slow growing, lumbering giants, and they've mm. turned around and become much better companies. And this could have been an opportunity, and I thought it would have been an opportunity for Telstra to do that. And that that it's 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 still possible, but from the early indications and just watching what management has had to say and the way the market has reacted, I don't think that's going to be the case here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it uh, it sort of like um, reminds me a bit of the banks in the way that you know they sort of um, they sort of do things for. For, for the wrong reasons on at some times like you have the shareholder base just thinking of the banks where they just demand dividends no matter what 
Um, and maybe sometimes it isn't always the best thing, but I guess you kind of have to listen to your to your shareholders as well. So do you think that's sort of what's happened here? Or Yeah, look, I, I think, yeah, my position has really evolved on this. So, um, you know, what, a little secret. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I, one of the primary things I look for is when I listen to a lot of CEO interviews now and when the CEO talks about the reason for the business existing is if he, if he mentions it's for shareholders or to generate shareholder returns, I'm very unlikely to invest in that company. What I want to hear, like the correct answer to that question is what, of why do you exist and, and what's the purpose of the company is, mm. is, a, is to satisfy, is to solve a problem mm. or, to, um, or to satisfy customers. They're the only, I think, acceptable answers. And, mm. and the actions of Telstra tell you that, that this is a company that sort of sees its existence as, as satisfying shareholders. And, and you might think, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what it's there for? And, and maybe technically and legally that's correct. But, you know, think of the great businesses of the world and, and any company that really generates long-term returns. And it, it does that by, by solving problems and by being customer-centric and, and helping customers. You know, if you're, if you're a, a customer of Telstra, Telstra has gone through a two-year you know, board-heavy, massive investment. Um, uh, you know, they've imagine how much time has gone into this split, the fees involved in the split, how much attention it's taken. And if you're a customer of Telstra, like, where does that leave you? I'm a customer of Telstra. Like, it, it means nothing to me. You know, I, mean, I, I don't think any customer cares what the what the structure of the assets is. It may, means nothing. This is just an engineering exercise. Yeah, well, I think it's a great insight, though. Um, you know, to to that sort of that pattern recognition of um, yeah. you know the great the greatest companies in the world they're driven by just founders that are, you know, they're they're looking to 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 solve a big problem. Um, and that's probably not Telstra. No, um, it's it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely not Telstra. <laughs> yeah, and and look, it doesn't even have to be founder led. I mean, there are great companies that um, uh, that just have management and you know, i think sometimes we make too much of this idea of skin in the game and founder led these are really important but um, we shouldn't we shouldn't make that, that the exclusive site um you know with which we view companies i think there's there's can always be good and bad management and they they can be founders or non-founders but anyway okay glad good i got that off my chest boys um that's been <laughs> bugging me for a while um gentlemen i think we better leave the podcast on that on that sour note Hopefully we can talk about something more upbeat next time, like the the split of Tabcorp, perhaps. Or, or Graham, I would really like to talk about API, which I think is an idea that um, has a lot of merit, and uh, I reckon uh, no one has bought it. <laughs> and then it'd be good to to talk about it a bit um, in the future podcast. Yeah, interesting company, Mickelson. Um, maybe we'll talk about uh, uh, an interesting. The origins of the uh, of the sun. Ooh. Could talk about that. Well, we could, but I don't think we will. <laughs> don't know if we have enough time in an episode. <laughs> uh, people are probably wondering about. It. We might have to explain this, people. Uh... On that cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. If you want to, if you want to understand why Mickey's turned into Mickelson, you have to tune in next time. He's part Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, thanks for joining us um, over there in Canada. Thank you, Gora. And Mickelson, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Gaurav. Cheers. And for everyone else, thank you for listening.